evidence and answers. In Genesis 1, God commanded man to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. However, with the advance in technology, is man now becoming slave to the machines he invented? What is the future of mankind and the advancing technology? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, Pat is continuing his interview with Dr. Craig Gay as they discuss modern technologies and the human future. Now, on to today's broadcast. The reasons are simply that automatic machine technology is striving toward becoming automatic. So, I mean, it isn't intended to enhance ordinary embodied human existence. In a sense, I guess you could argue that, well, yes, but it's making products and services available to ordinary people at cheaper costs. But beyond that, it really isn't intended to enhance human being. And, you know, technology can do that. I mean, there are lots of examples of technologies that have made human being possible and and rich and full and and engaged and, and, you know, all sorts of good things have resulted from our use of technology. But automatic machine technology, that's not what it's designed to do. Yes, and Dr. Gay, what are the moral guidelines for the responsible use and development of technology? I see a lot thinking that says, well, if we can do it, then we should. But really, there needs to be some kind of more ethical guidelines in how we responsibly use and develop and pursue new technologies. Yeah, I mean, that's a big question, and it's it's a hard question. But I think people, I mean, often ask pretty much day to day, you know, what about this technology or what about that? Should we use this? Should we use that? Is this good or is this bad? And one of the points I make in the book is that these are good questions, but we stand absolutely no chance of answering them unless we know what kinds of people we are trying to become, unless we know kind of where we are and where we're trying to get to. And then we can ask, okay, is this technology helping? Is it helping us to become the kinds of people that we are aspiring to become or not? And if it's helping, great, use it, celebrate it, be thankful for it. But if it's not helping, well, obviously you wouldn't use it. I mean, it's not helping us to get to where we're trying to get to. And again, the the problem today is that these sorts of basic questions about, you know, who, who do we want to become? Like, what does it mean to be a genuinely human person? These kinds of questions aren't being asked, and they're, they're not being asked as, as actively as they ought to be. And that's why I'm trying to reintroduce the, the whole last half of the book is basically trying to sketch out a theology of where in the world we are, what creation is about, what the human vocation within the creation or how that should be understood. And then at the very end of the book, I used all of that theology to help us begin to answer these, you know, more specific questions about should we do this, should we do that, should we use this, should we use that. But without the theology, you there's no way you can answer these questions. You're just drifting along with technological development and you're allowing the the people that market the stuff to tell us who we ought to aspire to be. And that just isn't a very good idea. Yes, you know, that is a great question that we need to ask that I rarely see being asked in, you know, this arena. What kind of people are we trying to become? What's the difference in, you know, as best as you can do it in the short amount of time that we have? I mean, 
How does the naturalist or the commercial world kind of answer that? Or what do they want us to become compared to the biblical response to this question? What kind of people are we trying to become? That is a great and very important question here. Well, I mean, the marketing people want to sell products, right? So, and I don't blame them. I mean, that's what they do. They want us to imagine what our lives will be like with the addition of whatever it is they're trying to sell us. And beyond that, you know, they don't really say much about, you know, what it means to be human or what what constitutes a good human life or, or whatnot. In a way, I don't know, I'm not in marketing, but I'm guessing that they really kind of want to discourage that kind of reflection because, you know, you don't have to think about it too hard to realize that, hey, I don't really need any of this stuff to be a good human being. And, you know, to think that if I buy this or that, somehow that's going to make me a better person. Well, no, it won't. So there's a sort of active discouragement of that kind of reflection, I think. But from a Christian point of view, I mean, there's a there's a lot we can say about this. I mean, gosh, our place, you started the program with a quote from Genesis about the human vocation as the stewards of creation to rule over the fish of the sea and so forth. Well, the consensus today is that the human creatures who are created in the image and likeness of God are placed within the creation in order to mediate God's presence and God's intention within the created order. And I take that to mean that our job within the creation is to enable things, the other creatures, to be themselves to be fruitful, to live, to thrive. I mean, that's our task. It's to take care of the world such that it can become most fully what it desires to become in, in fruitfulness and diversity and, and pluriformity and, and whatnot. I mean, a friend of mine coined the term superabundance to describe uh, God's intention for uh, created order. And our task is to facilitate that as well as to give voice to it. All of a sudden, you know, when you start to think about life that way and you start to think especially about the tools we use and, and the things that we're doing, you know, things start to fall into place. And a lot of what we're currently doing to our world is diminishing it. It's not enabling things to flourish. So, I mean, that's where I do take that discussion in that uh, later chapter of the book. But it's a big question. Does that begin to help? Yes. Yes, you're listening to our interview with Dr. Craig Gay, and we're talking about his new book here, Modern Technology and the Human Future. Well, Dr. Gay, give us an example of what you mean when you say, you know, a lot of things we create does not allow the creation and mankind to flourish. You, you, you got an example off the top of your head? Well, I mean, the best example that I think I can think of at the moment is, this is my example. I borrow this from Wendell Berry and, and Michael Pollan. It's the example of industrial agriculture and what is called monoculture, that we've taken natural diversity, we've eliminated that in favor of single crops grown over vast areas using chemical fertilizers and industrial technologies and tools. And this is great in a lot of ways. I mean, this is what enables us to have fast food, right? Because you've got lots and lots of fast food outlets that are serving up lots and lots of meals to lots and lots of people, you know, every minute of every day. And you have to supply them with, you know, potatoes and beef, you know, the limited range of products that they actually sell. And that requires these things to be grown in vast quantities. But it's all simplified and everything's homogenous and 
it's standardized. And instead of increasing the range of possibilities, it's decreased it. And instead of broadening the horizon, it's narrowed it. And I mean, it's bad for soil. It's bad for animal worlds in, you know, in terms of environmental impact. It also turns out to be bad for people in terms of diet. But this is the way modern mechanized agriculture works. And why? Well, because it's cost effective and it's efficient and it makes, it makes these basically fast food industry possible. That's a good example of it. We're diminishing the creation for the sake of commercial development. Uh, we're narrowing the range of options for the sake of profit. I don't want to come down too hard on fast food, but it's just, this is not stewardship. We're not stewarding the creation. We're using the creation for the sake of purposes that we've imposed upon it, which are narrow and, and short-sighted, you know, ultimately selfish. And this isn't working out well. This is not what stewardship means. So that's probably the best example I can think of off the top of my head. Yes. You know, one of the uh, questions that are being asked now as artificial intelligence develops, as machines are becoming more human-like, and I think we've brought it up a couple times on this show, now we're seeing the debate on what does it mean to be human? You know, why is that a question that's being asked in our time now? It seems like a pretty obvious answer years past, but suddenly now we're asking that question, what does it mean to be human? Well, that's great. I mean, I, this is an age-old question, and it's one that we should ask. And I just hope that people are trying to answer it as well as, you know, ask it, because it begs theological questions. You can't really answer that question of what it means to be human without raising the question of God. And, you know, where, why are we here? How did we get here? And the more people uh, ask those sorts of questions, the happier I am, because that's fruitful, right? You know, when it's asked in certain circles, technological circles, it's more a question of what features of human being are necessary, I don't know, what possibly use to develop artificial intelligence and, and, and so forth. There, I don't know if, if the question's really being raised in, in a way that is very fruitful, but it's interesting. I mean, in general, I wouldn't ever want to discourage people from asking that question. It's a crucial question. You state in your book that there seems to be a direction that our machines are getting more intelligent and human-like while we are lapsing into greater ignorance and more machine-like. Explain that to us. I think it's a very significant observation you make there. Well, I mean, the, the observation is, I think I cite Nicholas Carr there, but it's the impact that automated systems have on human skill development. And we know this every time we're forced to do a mathematical calculation and all we have at our disposal is pen and or, you know, maybe a pencil and a piece of paper, and you have to try and remember, how do you do long division, right? Or uh, how do you multiply large numbers? And of course, this used to be rote. I mean, you know, we learned in school how to do these things. It used to be easy. You wouldn't even have had to think about it, right? But we've gotten so used to using our phones and our calculators on the phones to do these calculations that now, when we're forced to actually do them by hand, we have to really stop and think, gosh, how, how was it that you did that? Well, that's true of any kind of automated system that, that people use. We lose the skills. This has been in the news recently, the problem of automated systems in commercial aircraft, that the pilots are now basically administrators of, automatic, of automated systems in, in aircraft. And when they're forced to actually fly the planes, 
sometimes they can't remember how. That's been not a good thing. So the other example that Nicholas Carr gives, which is interesting, is the um, Eskimos, the Inuit in the north of Canada, were legendary for being able to find their way in the Arctic. Uh, whether you know, I mean, there are no landmarks apparently. I mean, it, it's like everything looks the same, and yet these people could navigate over tremendous distances, very, very accurately. Nobody really knew how they did this. It was a skill that was passed on from generation to generation until they started to use GPS devices, the younger generation. They started to use snowmobiles with GPS systems. And now, all of a sudden, within one generation, it looks like that wayfinding skill that used to be so remarkable has been lost. And nobody knows how it will ever be recovered or if it will be possible to recover it. So again, these automated systems that we use, and, and I, you know, I mean, I, we all use them, but they can result and often do result, maybe even necessarily result in the loss of skills. Yes, you know, I don't know if this is a good example, but, you know, I'm a ex-collegiate golfer and things. And, you know, when we played, we didn't have GPS and all these machines that tell us how far Distance, away the yeah. target is and the wind blowing and all these kinds of things and where to hit the ball. And now when I'm playing with my friends, they just look at their phones and the phones tell them how far it is, where the wind is blowing and pretty much what to hit. And so when I, t you know, and I refuse to use those things. So when I force them not to use them, Boy, I tear them up, you know. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah. Maybe that's you know something that we're you you say skills that we're losing here because of technology. But maybe more on a serious note, you know, with this younger generation, they're building their relationships on the internet, texting and iPhone and Facebook and all this. But when it comes to face-to-face -face relationships, there I'm finding, you know, in my students that they're much more weaker interpersonal relationships because they're so used to just typing and texting and you can actually almost be someone else when you're having these kinds of relationships over the internet. Is that another example? Yeah, no, and this is a big concern. Now, the person who's written a lot about this in the last number of years is a woman at MIT named Sherry Turkle. But basically, this is an ex it's a good example of we're allowing our devices to interfere or to interpose themselves between us. Um, I mean, you know, the classic example that, you know, we can all think of is, you know, going into a restaurant and you see a young couple and they're sitting across the table from each other, but they're not talking to each other on their phones. And that sort of epitomizes the problem that the devices are, are getting in the way of our communication, our face-to-face. -face. And yeah, this is not good because we become who we are only, I think, in, maybe I won't say only, but most fully in face-to-face -face interactions with other people. You know, initially with our parents, with our mothers and fathers and siblings, but then also with our friends. I mean, this face-to-face -face interaction is absolutely crucial to human development. And to the extent that we're you know, our technology is getting in the way of it. This can't be good. And it turns out there's evidence emerging and a fair amount of evidence already out there that suggests that no, it, it actually isn't good. The thing that makes it even more sobering is that conversation, face-to-face -face interaction is not something that we're born knowing how to do. It's something we learn how to do. 
and we learn how to do it by practicing it. And, you know, it takes years. And it's an art, the art of conversation, the art of engaging another in a meaningful conversation. And if kids aren't learning this when they're young, it's not going to be any easier to learn when they're not young, right? It doesn't get any easier as you get older. So I think more and more people are starting to say, look, put the phones away. Let's talk with each other face to face around the table over a meal. These are things that we don't want to sacrifice to convenience. Yes. You know, as I'm reading your book, the movie Terminator keeps that picture keeps coming in my mind where the machines are now seems just as capable as humans. And now they want to exterminate the humans and the humans have become so dependent upon the machines that the machines eventually take over. Do you see a scenario similar to that in days to come if we're not careful or we're so dependent on the machines that we become totally dependent on them and they kind of take over? Well, no. I mean, you know, I like that movie too, but I don't, you know, that's Hollywood. I think the more immediate problem is that the more dependent upon machine systems we become, the more helpless we are when the machine systems fail. And, you know, that does worry me. And who knows uh, how this will play out, but we would be in deep trouble if increasingly if the Internet somehow failed. All of a sudden, you wouldn't be able to do anything. So. I guess the way I would think about it is that we ought to beware of becoming too dependent upon, you know, the machinery and the machine systems just because they might fail. And that would leave us in sorry shape. Yes. As it seems like the advancement of this technology is coming at us like a tsunami. It just continues to grow and grow and it's going in its own direction that we can't control. Is that a good picture of what's going on or can we control and direct this growth in which the technology is advancing and we're becoming more and more dependent upon the machine? Well, I hope so. Although I agree that it's uh, it is developing rapidly and I mean I think the directions that it's headed are fairly clear. It's moving again in the direction of automation. And the reason for that is because automation is cost effective and makes for, you know, short term economic growth. Now, can we change that? Well, I think we probably can if we decide we want to. We could, for example, decide to put a place of priority on the development of people rather than on uh, the development of machine systems. We could reward, possibly by way of tax policy or other things, we could reward companies for employing people rather than uh, automating their processes. We could encourage firms to train and develop people rather than uh, replacing them with robots, basically. Yes, there are things we can do. We can choose as consumers not always to shop for the best price, which, you know, that to the extent that we, the consumers, we as consumers can be relied upon to always shop for the best deals. Well, that just drives the whole process of automation. Well, in many parts of the, of the economy, and we could decide as consumers that no, we're not going to do that. We're not, we're not going to go to a place that has automated kiosks. We're going to insist upon a place that employs people. I mean, that's a decision we could make. And it would, if a lot of us made that decision, that would make a difference. So, yeah, I think there are lots of things we can do, but we have to think about it and we have to kind of have a sense of how the system works and what kinds of forces can be brought to bear on it that might stand a chance of changing it. 
Yes. And so you bring up a lot of good issues and questions that we should be asking regarding the responsible development and use of technology. And as we bring this show to a close, you know, what is the role of the church and the Christian believer in all of this debate on technology and its responsible use and development? How can churches teach and train their people in this whole arena? Well, I mean, there's a lot we can do. In fact, we just had a three-part session at our church on this whole question of technology. But mainly, the church needs to remember its theology. What are the core convictions of the Christian faith? Why does creation matter? How do we understand that? We talk about it, and God created the heavens and the earth. We say it when we say the creeds, but what does it mean? What are the implications of that for the way we live? The implications of how should we understand our role within the created order, our vocation? What are we called to do? What have we been saved for as Christians? What does the future hold? I mean, these are all super important questions. And if we're at all clear on answering these questions, again, you know, what kinds of people are we trying to become? Then the questions about technology become much, much easier to answer. And, you know, it's basically, does this technology or that, does it help? Is it helping us to become the people we are desiring to become? Is it helping us to be the stewards of the creation that we know that God calls us to be? And if it is, great, use it, celebrate it. But if it isn't, then no. I mean, you know, what sense would that make? If it's not helping us to become the people that we're, we're desiring to become, that God is calling us to become, then it just doesn't make any sense to use it. The churches can do a lot. And I think along this line that the most important thing is to remember what the Christian proclamation about Jesus Christ and, and the incarnation and the, his resurrection from the dead and all of these things, what the, the implications they have for how we understand what it means to be a human person, a human being. That's fantastic. You know, uh, Dr. Gay, you don't hear too many churches preaching on this topic. I think your church is pretty unique in that they did a whole series on this topic. Besides your book, Modern Technology and the Human Future, where can people find resources on you and the things you've written, but also information on this area of technology from a biblical or Christian worldview perspective? Information about the book is, is available on the InterVarsity Press website, so it's IVP Academic. There's also a fair amount of information about this whole subject area that we have developed out of our own bookstore here at Regent College. So uh, you can look on the Regent College bookstore website. One of the books that I've been recommending a lot to people and that I think is very helpful for families in, in particular, but it's by an author named Andy Crouch, and the book is called The Tech Wise Family. That's just out from, again, published by InterVarsity, I think just this last year. And you follow up footnotes. There are lots of those in, in my book. I mean, once you start going in this direction, you're, you're going to find there, there are actually lots of really good things to read and consider. Yes, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Craig Gay. He received his doctorate from Boston University and is a professor of interdisciplinary studies at Regent College there in Vancouver, Canada. We've been featuring his book here, Modern Technology and the Human Future, but he is author of numerous 
books and scholarly articles on the subjects of modernity, secularization, economic ethics, and technology. So, Dr. Gate, thanks for being with us here on Evidence and Answers. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call in Hawaii. That number locally is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, please visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran.